of John. I'll be reading John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. I'll be reading here from the English Standard Version. Would you please stand together as we um, revere the Word of God? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was coming into the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The uh, the title for the sermon as it reads in your bulletin says, Witness to the World. And uh, although um, that's true, uh, we we hope that that through, we know that through the life of Jesus, we find a witness to, to the world, but it's actually a typo. It should really say witness to the word, more specifically witnesses to the word. And I trust that that as we work through the, the book of, of the, well, the gospel according to John, and, and especially as we see here this morning, we trust that we'll see just how the gospel according to John presents us with witnesses to the word. John Chrysostom said that the gospel according to John is like a magic pool in which an infant can paddle and an elephant can swim. By this he meant that there are truths contained within this book that are so simple that they could be understood by the youngest of children, but also contained within are truths that are so deep that the wisest of scholars would be bewildered and astounded. Now, we're about to dive into the gospel according to John together, and I trust that whether you are an infant or an elephant, that we will all be stretched and encouraged and challenged as we look through, as we study the book of of John together. Now, I'm really excited to be be studying this book. This is really the first time that, that I've preached through an entire gospel. If you remember a couple of years ago, I did preach uh, through the Sermon of the Mount from Matthew 6 to 8. 
But now we're going to go through, Lord willing, the entire gospel according to John. As I said earlier, I'm anticipating somewhere between nine months and a year to, to get through this book. Now, I might be a little bit ambitious. Uh, I know John MacArthur took 10 years to preach through Luke, so maybe only a year to go through John is, is maybe it's not going to happen. And I know even as I prepared for the sermon, I was thinking, I don't think I can do this text in just one week. But uh, that's one of the advantages of coming back week after week. I can always just pause there if I need to and then pick it up where we left off. So like we talked about the cliffhangers uh, in the book of Ruth, if we leave off like that, you'll have to come back next week and find out what happens next. But although the gospel, according to John, has as many, it has many differences from the synoptic gospels, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are so called because they, they really cover a lot of the same material and the same events from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Although John's gospel covers roughly, well, a lot of the same time period, it's really quite different from the other three gospels in, in what it contains. It does contain many of, the, many of the same key events, obviously including the events leading up to and surrounding the crucifixion of our Lord, but he also includes quite a bit of different material, things that are, are not found in the synoptic gospels, and he, he doesn't present things that they present. Much of the teaching from John is actually in the form of lengthy discussions that he has with, with individuals and groups that Jesus comes into contact with. Also, largely absent from John's gospel are the parables. There's really virtually none in here, and they're a prominent feature in the other gospels. Also, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each begin with the birth of Jesus Christ, and, and Matthew and Luke provide genealogies which show the lineage of Christ. We talked about the genealogy of, of Jesus from, from Matthew as, uh, as paralleled in the, in the book of, of Ruth last week. And it went all the way back that, that um, in, in Matthew's genealogy goes all the way back to Abraham. And in Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. But John takes us back further still. He takes us all the way back. Back to the beginning. And this, this gospel is really roughly breaks down into the prologue, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, that we'll be looking at this morning. And then the signs and witnesses of the Messiah from uh, chapter 119 through to chapter 12, verse 50. And then in chapter 13 through to the end of chapter 20, we have Jesus' uh, farewell discourse and passion narrative. And then finally, we have an epilogue in chapter 21. So this morning we're really going to focus in on verses 1 to 18, the prologue. This serves as an introduction to John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. It will actually serve us well as an introduction to the gospel according to John, because in this prologue we find many of the key themes that we're going to see that are going to come up again and again throughout this gospel. But when we're studying the Word of God, it's, it's really, really important that we try to understand the authorial intent. Why did the Spirit-inspired author write what he wrote? In contradiction to what is taught by the emergent church, the meaning does not originate with the reader of Scripture. 
the meaning originates with the Holy Spirit-inspired writer of Scripture. These men were writing for a specific purpose. And in order to try to understand what this means, not only to us, but first of all, for the the people to whom it was first written, we really need to try to figure out what the authorial intent is. Each of the Gospels looks at, at the life and ministry of Jesus from a different perspective, like facets of a diamond. Matthew is writing predominantly to Jews, so he shows how Jesus is the son of David, king of the throne of Israel, showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of the coming Messiah. Mark is writing primarily to Gentiles, so he teaches about Jewish customs, he explains them for the readers, and then demonstrates how Jesus is the consummation of what God is doing in Israel and around the world. Luke focused on the humanity of Jesus, demonstrating Jesus' concern for the neglected of society, for children, for women, and the poor. But in the case of the gospel according to John, determining authorial intent is really quite easy because he just comes out and tells us. So have a look in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, there towards the end. John tells us why he wrote it. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John there is telling us that he wrote his gospel so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that we would be saved. So now let's look through this prologue. Let's look through chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, 1 to 18 and see the key themes. The dominant theme of the book comes out immediately. John doesn't waste any time beating around the bush. He tells us right away, right there in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the word here obviously refers to Jesus because in verse 14, John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, there's only three places in the New Testament where this term is applied directly to Jesus, and it's always John that does it. He does it in verse 14, as we just saw, but also in his first epistle, referring to Jesus as the word of life, he says, that which is from the beginning. Jesus is the Logos, the word of life. He also refers to Jesus as the word in Revelation 19.13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. As A.W. Pink explains, the theme of John's gospel is the deity of the Savior. Jesus is God. Nowhere else, Pink says, in all of Scripture is this explained so fully. The Godhood of Christ is presented to our view. Now, in words that intentionally draw the reader back to Genesis 1, John goes back to the beginning, and not just the beginning of creation, he goes back to eternity past. If you remember a few months ago, in our study of the attributes of God, I tried to, to, to scratch the surface 
of, of explaining the eternality of God. And obviously it's an impossible concept for us to understand apart from the eyes of faith. But the word that he uses he is the imperfect of the verb in Greek, emi, which means to be. What he's saying really here is that the word did not come into existence. He simply was. That Jesus, the word, is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Charles Simeon explains that although he was born into the world in time, yet in his divine nature, he existed from eternity. Jesus applied this truth to himself in John 8, 58, where he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And I am is in the Hebrew, Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord. And it was this, word, this word was first used in God's conversation with Moses when the pre-incarnate Christ appeared to Moses at the burning bush and said, I am who I am. And he said, you will say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when Jesus there said before Abraham was, I am, he was declaring himself to be God. And the Pharisees understood that because they took up stones to stone him. Now the prologue here, verses 1 to 18, has a chiastic structure. So it's we'll see uh, that he returns to the same themes later on again. Each verse or each, each section has a mirror image later on in it and points to the centrality of who Jesus is. So down in verse 18, John returns to this theme of Jesus as God. He says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see what he's saying here? That Jesus is the only God who is at the Father's side. Very, very clearly saying that Jesus is God. So he declares dis, dis, directly, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is saying here that, that he is one with the Father, but that he is, he is also distinct from the Father. And that's the next theme that, that John picks up on throughout this, this gospel, that Jesus is God the Son. You see there in, in verse 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus isn't God the Father, he is God the Son. They're one, but they're distinct. Now, if God's eternality wasn't difficult enough for us to comprehend, now we're thinking about, about how he could somehow be, be with God and be God at the same time. So now we're getting into elephant water. And this phrase has caused controversy almost since the time it was first penned. And when people try to explain it, they almost always end up at best in error, but at worst in heresy. This was true of the Arians who denied the deity of Christ. They said that, that Jesus was a created being, and this heresy lives on in the Watchtower cult, who is, they're commonly referred to as the, as the Jehovah Witnesses. And in this passage, in their corrupt New World translation, they actually insert the word a. 
So they say that, that the word was with God and the word was a God. They say the word was a God. The Sibelians also tried to deny the Trinity but by, by saying that Jesus is the Father and the Son, while the Holy Spirit is just a force or a power, not a person. And this heresy continues today in the United Pentecostal cult, where they say that it's, it's modalism or oneness Pentecostalism, that Jesus is the name of the Father and the Son. And obviously, the fact that, that at the, 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 among so many other verses, but the, the passage of the, describing the baptism of Jesus Christ, where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present, they clearly refute that false teaching. Another key theme in the book of John is, is Jesus as the creator. A.W. Pink explains that word is an expression, and by words we articulate our speech. The word of God, then, is deity expressing itself in audible terms. So as I mentioned earlier, John's use of the word, word, in the beginning was the word, is an intentional link back to Genesis 1, revealing Jesus' presence and his role in creation. In Genesis 1, 1 to 3, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So the whole of the Trinity was active and present. But it was by His Word, by His Word that God created and we'll see that that's going to be important for us to understand later on as well. Verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And similarly in verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him. So John's reference to, to Jesus in this way as the word would have uh, struck a chord in the Jewish mind, and it would provide profoundly new depth to verses like Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Hebrews 1, 1-3 points us in the same direction. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers, the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So as John MacArthur explains, Jesus is the embodiment of the Old Testament concept of the word. MacArthur explains again, he says that if you want to see that word, that creative divine reason and mind and will and power of God, that you've seen all through the Old Testament era, if you want to see all that power gathered up and put in a body, look at Jesus. Again, Jesus is the embodiment of the Word. And Jesus, as the Word, would have resonated with the Greek mind as well. The Greek word for word is logos. Logos. In Greek philosophy, the concept of logos is tied to and bound up with the, the concept of reason. So Greeks use the term logos to describe the, the rational principle of creating, sustaining, and governing the universe. 
So essentially, John is saying that the power and reason that created and sustains the world is the Word. Is the Word. It's Jesus Christ. The Word become flesh. In verse 4, we see another common theme in the book of John, that Jesus is life. Jesus is life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Reference after reference in this gospel referred to life coming through and only through Jesus Christ. In John 20, 31, as we saw earlier, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is the Savior of the world. The best-known verse in the Bible is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus is the Savior of the world without exception, but that he is the Savior of the world without distinction. And we'll see this more in depth when we study John 3.16 in a few weeks. Jesus is not the Savior of every single man, woman, and child. That is universalism, and that's heresy. Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And similarly, in Acts 4.12, Luke writes, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. So Jesus is the exclusive Savior. He is the only Savior. We also have John 5.24 and 25. Where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So life and salvation are found through the word. It is by the word of God that God saves. The Lord says in Isaiah 20, 40, verses 21 to 23, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So this here, the word of the Lord in Isaiah, is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus Paul knew this when he applied these very words to Christ in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. The next common theme in the book of John is Jesus as light. Jesus is light in verses 4 to 9. Particularly here in verse when 4b, we says, it says, The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This again points back to Genesis, when God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So through the word, there is light in the place of darkness. Also in, one John, sorry, in John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And Jesus declares it of himself in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus came into a world that was darkened by sin. And the elect, elect will respond to the light of Christ in repentance and faith as the Holy Spirit gives them life. Charles Wesley wrote in his excellent hymn, And Can It Be? Long my, in, my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. At other places, I believe Wesley really showed a, a, a lack of an understanding of God's sovereignty in these things. But do you see that? He says that his spirit was imprisoned in sin by its nature. And God's eye diffused a quickening ray. God's eye sent out the light of Jesus Christ. And it's not just a ray, it is a quickening ray. It is a ray that brings life. But here, when, it, when John speaks about, again, that the, life as, the light as being the light of the world, we need to be careful when we look at words like world and everyone. Because again, if Jesus is giving saving light to everyone, then everyone would be saved. And that's simply not the case. So we ask then, well, in what sense is Jesus the light of men? This has become abundantly clear as we study through the book, but it refers, I believe, to a moral enlightening. The light of Jesus shows us God's standard of righteousness. It shows us how holy God is. And it was visible there before people as as the sinless God walked through his creation without sinning in thought or in word or in deed. So in the face of Jesus, all of our pretenses of self-righteousness melt away. His light reveals darkness for what it is. Next, we're going to see how Jesus it has many witnesses, and John testifies here of witnesses to Jesus in verses 6 to 8 and again in, in verse 15. The book lives, lists witness after witness that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, John uses the word witness 27 times, far more than any other book in the Bible. The disciples bear witness. Jesus himself bears witness through his words and his works. 
The Father and the Spirit bear witness. The Scriptures bear witness. The crowds bear witness. John himself bears witness. But here we focus on the witness of John the Baptist. Look at verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. As Matthew explains in his gospel, John the Baptist came in the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. He was the voice of the one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Matthew 3, 3. Jesus came baptize, or sorry, Matthew came again. John came baptizing for repentance, for forgiveness from sin, Mark 1, 4. John the Baptist recognized Jesus even when he was in his mother's womb, only a few months old, as he leapt for joy in Luke 1, 39. Yet even though John was the greatest among men, Jesus ranked far above him. John 1, 5. And John testified that he was not worthy even to untie the strap of the sandal of Jesus in 127. John said that, that Jesus would increase while he would decrease. So upon the arrival of Jesus, John the Baptist would quickly fade into obscurity and would soon be martyred by Herod. And this then leads us to the enemies of Jesus. And we see that in verse 5 and also in verses 10 and 11. So go back to verse 5 for a second. I'm not really sure why the translators of the ESV translated this, that the darkness has not overcome it. Although in the semantic range of, of the Greek word katalambano, it can mean overcome, the more natural understanding is, is that of of comprehend or understand, and, and that's the way that, that most English versions of the Bible translate it, that the darkness has not comprehended it. So the darkness did not comprehend or understand the light. In verse 10, we read that, that the light was in the world and that the world was made through him, yet the world did not Know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see Jesus rejected. It's almost as common a theme as those who bear witness to him. The Pharisees reject him. The Jewish people ultimately reject him. The Romans reject him. Even his own disciples reject him. One commits suicide and faces eternal damnation, and another repents and is restored. But there will always be a response when the light of Christ shines. Creatures of light will be drawn to the light as the Holy Spirit regenerates their hearts. Creatures of darkness, however, will scurry for cover as their sin is exposed. In John 3, 19 and 20, we read, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. So when the Holy Spirit is drawing, is drawing one of the elect to himself, the first thing he does is convict of sin. 
That's why the law is such a powerful tool of evangelism. Because it shows us how guilty we are. And while most people appeal to their own self-righteousness, when we see who we are in light of the law and far more powerfully in the light of Jesus Christ, we see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. In verses 12 and 13, we see yet another key theme, that Jesus gives spiritual birth. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So God is sovereign in salvation. Although man does respond, salvation does not come about by the will of man. God saves monergistically. Salvation is grounded entirely in God's will and in God's work. Just as we saw earlier that all of the Trinity was there present and at work in initial creation, all of the Trinity is present and at work in regeneration. Although there's a mystery in how these things take place, and there's a significant overlap in the role of, of each member of the Trinity, there are some clear distinctions that we can make. The Father elects, the Son dies, and the Spirit gives life. Now, this is extremely controversial, but we really need to allow the Word of God to speak to this. Jesus taught in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in, his conver in a Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus said in verse 3 that those who are not born again cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, unless, is, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 6, he taught that that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, is spirit. So the new birth is spiritual, and it is wrought by the sovereign work of God. Next key theme is in verse 14, that Jesus took on flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, from where we're sitting in redemption history, we really don't struggle too much with that concept of God taking on human flesh, of Jesus emptying himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2, 7 and 8. We don't really grapple with that concept, and I, and I think it really shows a failure in, for those in our culture to really understand eternal realities that we are not floored by the fact that God became man. That a holy God came and walked in the midst of a filthy creation. That should astound us. 
Jesus was truly God and truly man. It's the only way that he could serve as our mediator. Since it was man who sinned, it must be man who atones for sin. But it also must be God because it is only the supreme sacrifice of God that can atone for the sins of his elect. So unlike the assaults of the deity of Christ that are so rampant today, in the early church, it was often his humanity that was questioned. Heretics acknowledged that Jesus is God, but they began to say that he could not have been fully man. And this culminated in the convening of the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. And they come up with this confession. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable or rational soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to manhood. Now this term consubstantial is really important. It means, it means of the same essence. Jesus is of the same essence with God the Father and also of the same essence with us in his humanity. In verse 14, we see that Jesus shares the glory with the Father. John lists himself as a witness here. He says, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says the same thing in his first epistle. John presents Isaiah as another witness of Christ's glory in John 12, 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Again, another clear testimony that that the one that Isaiah saw was the pre-incarnate Christ. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. Jesus declared this truth in John 10.20. I and the Father are one. And again, the Pharisees sought to stone him. Jesus declared this truth twice in his high priestly prayer. In John 17.5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory with which I had, which I had with you before the world was. And in 1724, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus shared glory with the Father from eternity past. He is the eternal Son of God, one in essence with the Father, sharing glory with the Father. In verses 16 and 17, we see that Jesus gives grace. For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So out of the overflow of Christ's riches, he gives grace his unmerited favor. This is grounded in his faithfulness to his people and seen powerfully when he passed before Moses in Exodus 34, 6. 
The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin, but but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So the grace of God finds its most supreme fulfillment when God sent his only son to die for our sins. It is the ultimate fulfillment, the culmination of the faithfulness and grace of God. Now John here contrasts law with grace, not saying that the law is bad, but that they serve a different purpose. Because if we are saved by works, then grace ceases to be grace. But it is, as I said earlier, it is through the law that God reveals his righteous character and his righteous requirements. It shows us our need for righteousness and for the forgiveness that can come only through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 17, we see that Jesus is truth. He is truth. It's tied closely to the concept of Jesus being life. In his dealings with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and and in truth, and Jesus said it again in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus is truth personified as the word. He is truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now this is again so attacked and so maligned in our culture when they say that there are many paths to God or that there are many interpretations to the word of God. If there are many interpretations to the word of God, then truth ceases to be truth and the concept of truth has no meaning whatsoever. So Jesus came as the embodiment of truth. And then finally, in verse 18, John goes back to his main theme, the theme that will really dominate this entire gospel. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. So as we will see through the rest of this gospel, That through the witnesses to Jesus, through the words of Jesus, through the works of Jesus, we will see that Jesus is God and that through him we may find life. And it's my prayer that that through this time that God would create life. 
just as he created the entire universe, that he would give life to dead hearts, even heart, dead hearts that are here in our midst this morning. That he would give encouragement. That we would learn to see who we are in light of the light of Jesus Christ. That we will understand who God is and why we are to respond with repentance and faith to him. That as we look at these things, as we see Christ, the word of God, that we will be enabled to preach the gospel to ourselves. Not just at the point of conversion, but we will see that we need the gospel every single day day of our lives. Now those are big expectations. Those are my goals. And I've talked to you before about the way that I try not to set goals beyond those things that are promised in Scripture. But God promises those things in Scripture. So they might be lofty goals, but it's my confidence that as we look at the word of God together in the power of the Holy Spirit, that those things will happen for the glory of God. Let's pray together.